0: Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm delighted to welcome to the show Dr. Paul Marrick, who is an endowed professor of medicine and chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine in the Eastern Virginia Medical School, which is often known as EVMS in Norfolk, Virginia. He is board certified in internal medicine, critical care medicine, neurocritical care and nutritional science. He has authored over 450 peer-reviewed journal articles, 80 book chapters, and four critical care books, is cited over 40,000 times in peer-reviewed publications, and has delivered in excess of 350 lectures at international conferences and visiting professorships, and has received numerous teaching awards. Dr. Marek is also the second most published critical care doctor, wait for it, in the world. Dr. Marek, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to speak with us on The Mind Renewed. Sure, it's a pleasure. Well, it's a great pleasure and a privilege to be speaking with you. Great to have the opportunity to speak with you because over the weeks I have been listening to your conversations with Dr. Mobin Syed, otherwise known as Dr. Bean, uh, who has been on this program in the past. And I've been very encouraged by what you've had to say um about the work of your medical group or medical alliance, the FCCC, which is the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, and the treatment protocols for COVID-19 that you've been developing over the months. Uh, first, the so-called Math Plus protocol, and latterly, the iMask Plus protocol, which I'll be asking you about both of those, particularly the second one. Um, and in particular, because of your inclusion of this drug called ivermectin, which at least seems to have amazing potential in the fight against COVID-19. Really a surprise that we haven't all heard about this all over the media. Well, we'll discuss that in a moment. But can we just start with you, Dr. Marek, could you tell us a little bit more about your background and your current work?
1: Sure. So I, I got my medical degree in South Africa and Johannesburg University of Advaitis Rand, probably one of the finest medical schools ever. Uh, I then did my internal medicine training in Johannesburg. I worked at baruch Hospital, which at that time was a 5,000-bed hospital. Um, usually had a census of about 6,000 patients. While I was there, I was fortunate enough to do a Master of Medicine degree. I did a diploma in Tropical Medicine through the university, as well as a Bachelor of Science degree. Uh, I then did a critical care fellowship in London, Ontario, Ah. uh, moved to the U.S. and have been in the U.S. for the last 25 plus years.
0: And to what extent are you actually involved with patients now? I mean, I ask that because, you know, being a professor can sound very ivory tower, but uh, I get the impression from your conversations that you are very much involved.
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question. I think it's really important. So, you know, I round in the ICU, I look after patients in the ICU, I manage patients in the ICU. So I have first hand experience with looking after COVID patients, hmm. which I think is fundamentally absolutely important. Because this is a very difficult, challenging, and fascinating disease. And unless you've actually been involved directly with these patients, I think you're clueless, absolutely clueless. Mm-hmm. This is a most fascinating disease. And it is essentially a critical care disease because these patients are either asymptomatic at home, or mildly symptomatic at home, or they're in the ICU. And I think. Critical care people have the most experience in treating this disease, and more importantly, in understanding this disease. Mm. So, you know, I personally have treated hundreds of patients with COVID. You know, I recently visited with my good friend Dr. Varone in Houston, who he himself has treated over five hundred patients personally, and I did round with him, uh, and we saw patients together. So, I think it's absolutely essential to have hands-on personal experience. And it really irks me when I hear these people in ivory towers who propagating the management of COVID, and they've never seen a COVID patient before. Mm. I think it's just awful, unscientific, and just bad medicine. Mm. And it's an outrage, actually, because I think they say things which are just completely not
0: true. And yet you and your Alliance colleagues are being called fringe. (laughs) You're the ones who are being (laughs) called names. Um, We'll come to that, no doubt, in a minute. But uh, your immediate reaction.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, that's, you know, unfortunately, that's life. And and we'll get into why it is Mm. what it is. Because I think, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theory person. I believe in science Mm. and I believe in the facts. Mm. But there is some sinister things going on. And, you know, it's important that I speak not only for myself, but our group, because we all critical care physicians, we all have an academic standing, we've all, you know, together we've published over 2,000 papers, and, you know, we look after this disease at the bedside, and that's how our group came together. You know, we decided that the leadership in the U.S. and across the world was abysmal. They weren't providing real-life guidance on how to manage this disease. Hmm. Let me say that again. It's a truly astonishing concept, and it hasn't changed. The WHO, the CDC, the NIH, all the medical societies have not provided practical scientific guidance on how to manage this disease. So that's how we got together. We thought, you know what, let's review the science. Let's Think about it. Let's study it. Let's contemplate it. So what we've been doing since March is constantly updating our database, updating our knowledge on COVID. And this is based on review of the scientific literature and our personal hands-on experience. Um, And obviously, as you say, there are some very powerful forces who don't like what we have to say, and they don't like the truth. So, you know, we have no conflict of interest. We're not making a penny out of this. In fact, it's consuming hundreds of hours of our time for which we're not compensated. But we feel we have a moral and ethical duty to do this.
0: Can I ask you how many doctors and researchers are involved in your alliance?
1: Yes, that's a good question. You know, it started off as four or five of us core physicians and, you know, as the word spread, we now have affiliate members from throughout the world. Wow. And in fact, we're delighted. I'm absolutely delighted to tell you that as of today, uh, Dr. Okumuru, who was the actual, dis- got the Nobel Prize. Hmm. He got the Nobel Prize for discovering agamectin, has joined our hmm. alliance. So, you know.
0: <laughs> Fringe, yes. <laughs> Indeed. So you can
1: see that Mm. although we considered fringe, you know, we have representation from physicians throughout the world. And, you know, I can tell you that in terms of our math plus protocol, it's being used widely across the world. Mm. The problem is because the powers that be considered fringe. People don't want to admit it publicly, so they are closet Math plus users because wow. they use it, they believe it, they understand it, but they will be profoundly criticized and ostracized if they publicly admit it.
0: Absolutely incredible. So
1: they are closet wow. Math plus users. It's truly an astonishing situation.
0: It is indeed truly astonishing. And uh, I'll just note that uh, Dr. Chris Martinson made a comment about this saying something along the lines of, well, if you lot are fringe, then where is there a centre anymore? <laughs> it's a job to make sense of it at all. Um, I just want to, before we get into the details of this, um, just make a disclaimer, which I always do on any of these medical type interviews. So I will say that nothing said in this conversation should be understood as medical advice. Everything said in this podcast is simply the sharing of information and opinion, expert opinion in in Dr. Marek's case, it is not medical advice, which is necessarily an individual matter. Please consult your doctor before taking any medications or making any changes to your diet by way of food supplementation. Now, having said that, um, could you introduce us to these protocols, the Math Plus protocol, which I believe you developed first, and then subsequently this eye mask Plus protocol, which I want to ask you more about that particularly.
1: Sure. So, you know, your disclaimer is really important because I get emails from Mm. hundreds of patients all over the world. And, you know, I give them the information and I say, you know, share this information. And this then should be a discussion between the patient and their physician. Um, And I think whatever patients decide is a personal choice. People should have the power to determine their treatment, but that should be a discussion Mm. between an informed patient and an informed physician.
0: Absolutely. Those are two
1: really important concepts. I think physicians have to understand and I think patients have to understand. And from my perspective, the greatest failure of this pandemic has been the lack of transparency and the lack of truth. Mm. Patients do not understand this disease, which then causes profound anxiety, depression, and all kinds of fringe behavior because they don't understand Mm -hmm. it. And I think the powers that be have limited access to the truth. And astonishingly, most doctors don't know how to treat this disease. It's a truly astonishing fact. I get emails daily, and I'm truly completely perplexed by Mm -hmm. the Lack of understanding on really basic yeah. concepts on COVID 19. Okay. So, you know, That's if incredible. you don't understand the disease, you can't treat the disease. It's a fundamental concept.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, when you were in conversation with uh, Dr. Bean, uh, I remember him saying something like, you know, we're now in the situation where lay people are listening to interviews like this, this sort of thing, picking up information and then effectively teaching their doctors because those doctors are not receiving information on high about how to deal with this particular disease. It's a topsy-turvy world.
1: It's completely crazy as, you know, I gave a presentation called The World Has Gone Mad and I sincerely believe the world has gone mad. I mean, you know, we're going to look back at this time period with complete disbelief that this actually ever happened. So getting back to our first protocol, so, you know, as I said, we kind of, between us, you know, looked at the literature, looked at what was happening at the bedside, and came up with the Math Plus protocol. And I should say, you know, the disease goes through various phases. And this is such a fundamental concept. And the healthcare practitioners, the NIH, the CDC, the WHO, still do not understand this basic concept. It's so basic. That treatment goes through phases and the treatment strategy in asymptomatic patients, early symptomatic patients, and those who progress to hospital are completely different. So in the early phase, you have viral replication. In the later pulmonary phase, it's not the virus that is killing the host. It's the host's immune response against the virus, which is killing itself. So this is a fundamentally really important concept and it's very bizarre. So it's not the virus that's killing the patient. And we know this from multiple, multiple studies that by the time patients get to hospital, the virus is dead. So giving antiviral therapy to kill the dead virus is dumb because as we know, when something is dead, you can't kill it more. It's dead. So, You know the the NIH continues to push remdesivir, which is an antiviral drug, which does not work once you're in the ICU or critically ill. So we figured this out that this is a profound inflammatory disease, and you just have to look after a few patients, and you see it. This is completely obvious. Hmm. They have a profound inflammatory response, and this is what's killing the host. So what do you do? It's not rocket science. You have to control the inflammatory response. And the most powerful drug to do that is corticosteroids. So starting in March of 2020, we as a group recommended the use of corticosteroids to treat the pulmonary phase of COVID. And based on previous data, using corticosteroids for ARDS. Dr. Maduri is a world expert on this. And based on really fascinating data, which I'll tell you, we decided that methylprednisolone is the drug of choice. So this was validated by a very interesting in vitro study. So what they did is they exposed pulmonary cells to SARS-CoV-2. And then they looked at what Genes were up and down regulated. So we know that COVID affects the genome. So what it does primarily is upregulate genes associated with inflammation. Mm -hmm. So what this very smart scientist did is using advanced mathematical techniques, he looked at what drugs specifically reverse the changes in the genome caused by SARS-CoV-2. It's quite ingenious. This is medicine of the future. And the single Mm -hmm. drug which had the highest hit was methylprednisolone, which is the drug we had decided to use. So we had clinical experience as well as we reviewed the data of SARS-1 and MERS and influenza. And based on that data and in vitro data, we had come up with the idea that you need to use corticosteroids. Mm. It just so happened that the WHO strongly advised against using corticosteroids. Let me say that again. The WHO, (laughs) based on their misunderstanding of the disease and the previous data, issued guidance in their guidance handbook, which is still available, which said, do not prescribe corticosteroids. (sighs) So, based on that recommendation of the WHO, the CDC, the NIH, and every other professional organization, including the Infectious Disease Society of America and Society of Critical Care Medicine, said do not use corticosteroids. And we were accused of medical malpractice. We were accused of medical malpractice for prescribing corticosteroids.
0: Incredible We
1: now know mm. we now know mm. that the recovery trial demonstrated that corticosteroids save lives. Mm. So one has to ask how many patients needlessly died yes. between March and June when corticosteroids were considered contraindicated. Oh. It's an important point to think about. Mm. And who is responsible mm. for those deaths? Absolutely. So that's how we came up with corticosteroids. In addition,
0: Mm.
1: we added intravenous vitamin C because of our previous work. And we know that vitamin C acts synergistically with corticosteroids to decrease inflammation. So we, we demonstrated that in vitro experiment in the laboratory, as well as our previous clinical experience. In addition... Anyone at the bedside absolutely knows that COVID-19 activates the coagulation cascade. Mm -hmm. SARS-CoV-2 actually binds to platelets and activates platelets, and you get massive clotting. So we added an anticoagulant. So, you know, this is just so basic. You know, we're not talking about, you know, advanced physics. This is just such a basic understanding. You have inflammation and you have clotting. So what do you do? You give a drug which prevents inflammation and prevents clotting. And we were considered fringe. Let me say that. We were considered fringe. <laughs> and what's really somewhat somewhat heartwarming is that every single of our recommendations, let me say that again, every single one of our recommendations is now supported by the highest level of scientific evidence.
0: Yeah.
1: And yet our protocol is not widely used.
0: Yes, It's it's, a
1: shame, and we believe that this has resulted in the excess death of hundreds of thousands of people. Maybe I should just say that again because I feel so Mm, passionate about this, and I don't understand why the forces that be have resulted in the excess death of hundreds of thousands of patients Well, the evidence is absolutely there for them to see.
0: It is astonishing and it's tragic. It is horrendous. Um, And you were saying about how it's amazing that this is the way it is, and yet the information is there for them to see. But even somebody like me, who has no medical training whatsoever, I can see the kinds of... Look, I've got this uh, graphic here with all that you've been talking about, and the kinds of things that you say in front of me. On the surface, I don't understand it in detail, but it, it makes immediate sense to me on the whole. So I can't see why anybody who had a medical training wouldn't at least take this seriously and look into it. So I find the blindness on this quite incredible, really. Can I just return to this graphic that I have here, where you I will put this in the show notes for today's show so that people can look at it. Um, You have the viral replication here on the left hand side of your graphic. And then um, after about day five or so on average, when people are beginning to show symptoms, you then have another part of the graphic where you have viral debris coming in. So you have the, the viral replication phase dropping off for about a week after showing symptoms, and then viral debris is increasing. And I think you said in one interview that the immune system is reacting, or the dysregulation of the immune system is occurring because of its reaction to the viral debris. So if there's too much debris, that's really problematic, and it's therefore absolutely crucial to hit the viral replication as early as possible. Am I reading that correctly?
1: Absolutely. So that's why, you know, you go through these different phases. And, Mm. you know, what we focused on in the initial phase is because, you know, we we were clinicians at the bedside and we Mm. saw this devastating disease. We then figured this out. And, you know, this is just common sense that what you actually want to do is prevent people coming to hospital and progressing to the pulmonary phase. Mm. And how do you do that? you prevent viral replication because the more the virus replicates, the more viruses you're going to have and the more viral debris. So, you know, this is just common sense. You know, as I Mm. said, there's nothing magical about this. It just makes common sense. But unfortunately, what I've realized is common sense is distinctly uncommon, if not Mm. rare. So that's why, you know, you have to look at this in the phases, which will come to our, Mm -hmm. our mask protocol, which is absolutely critical to prevent infection and to limit viral replication because that then limits the viral load and the viral debris so that you don't go on to the next phase. But once you've reached that phase, you know, the virus is dead. You have to deal with the inflammation. So you have to look at the continuum of this virus.
0: So that's the point at which you might give these corticosteroids, but you would not give those earlier at the wrong phase in the viral replication stage, presumably, because you would be suppressing the immune system, I would have thought.
1: Absolutely. So what you say is absolutely critical, and there are doctors who do not get this, who are prescribing corticosteroids early, Hmm. and they're harming patients. So we know this from the recovery trial. So this is what we were saying originally, and fortunately, or well, science just proved us right, That the recovery trial showed this. So let's just review. So, this was a large randomized study done in the UK. You know, in all, there were like 6,000 people who got dexamethasone. You know, I think it was the wrong drug in the wrong dose, but nevertheless, they got dexamethasone. And what they showed is if you required oxygen or were on a ventilator, it significantly reduced your chances of dying. However, If you did not require oxygen, i.e. when hospital but not had progressed to the pulmonary phase, steroids, there was a trend, a highly significant trend towards harm, Mm. towards an increased risk of death. So that's why you can see it becomes critical. Steroids are life-saving, but timing is essential. So in the viral replication phase, you want to boost the immune system. You want to get the host to kill the virus. Corticosteroids are contraindicated then. So that's why you can see understanding the disease, understanding the mechanisms, and the treatment is absolutely critical to treating this disease. Mm. So corticosteroids should not be used in symptomatic patients at home, and yet I don't understand why they be used in such a manner.
0: And equally, um, I know the substance is subject of a lot, a lot of uh, controversy, and I know that you are not as enthusiastic about it as many other doctors are. But hydroxychloroquine, for example, I understand does have some antiviral effects. So to be using that in the latter stages of the disease would be a waste of time at best.
1: Yeah. So, you know, hydroxychloroquine has become a very political issue. Yeah. You know, people. Just believe it because, you know, they want to believe it. I believe in this or that, and it doesn't matter what the science shows. I think you've got to look at the science. So initially, there was some enthusiasm with hydroxychloroquine because it did seem to have properties that were somewhat beneficial. We now know in the hospitalized patients, hydroxychloroquine is of no benefit. and They use some very high doses, in uh, the more recent study, the Solidarity study, and it was not beneficial. So I think we know that hydroxychloroquine has no place in critically ill people. Mm-hmm. Whether it has a role in early symptomatic patients or prophylaxis is a matter of debate. My personal feeling is that we have a much more effective drug than hydroxychloroquine called other mectin. And I think if you compare them head to head, Ivermectin is a much better choice.
0: Excellent. I want to speak to you in detail now about Ivermectin. So this is this is central to your iMask Plus protocol. So this is the protocol that came after Math Plus. It's a development of Math Plus, I understand, but it, it centers most in prophylaxis and early at home treatment, is that correct?
1: Yeah. So I mean from what I have just said,
0: mm. it
1: makes absolute sense That, you know, as a society, we should be doing everything we can to prevent this infection. And most importantly, those people who are sick, to treat them early to prevent them progressing. So let me give you one little example. I got an email from a patient last week who has COVID and is at home. She contacted her physician who said, and this is a quote, There's nothing I can do to help you. You must stay at home until you go blue and cannot breathe. When that happens, go to hospital. You have to be kidding me. What has this world come to? And that's a reflection of the NIH, which has been completely silent. The NIH, if you look at their guidelines, is completely silent on at-home treatment. Completely silent. So the position is you stay home until you can't breathe, and then you go to hospital. Now, obviously, just from basic principles, that's just so completely stupid. So we figured out, you know what? What we need to do is prevent this disease and treat people early. Treat them early so you decrease viral replication, you decrease viral load, and you decrease the chances of them progressing. So, you know, I'm saying this over and over again. This is not rocket science. This is just, you know... Basic common sense. So that's why, you know, we developed the IMASK mask protocol, which was kind of an adaption of what we had before. So, you know, when, when we started this in March, in our protocol, I had ivermectin as an option. So I do that in the protocol when the data is not that strong, but it's possible. So, you know, at the beginning, we did include hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin as a option because at that time the data wasn't strong we quickly dropped hydroxychloroquine and then as the data evolved ivermectin changed from optional to highly recommended so ivermectin now has become a central component of our prevention and early treatment protocol
0: okay so ivermectin the signal the research signal for ivermectin has become much stronger than hydroxychloroquine and so it has um, taken that place but i understand that it's not just useful in the first stages or even prophylactically but actually is useful right across covid19 if you get it
1: yeah so you know what this wasn't you know entirely clear to me at the beginning Hmm. but you know you have to look at the data and you know basically this is a gift ivermectin is a gift to us and you know we should all be using it to treat this disease so as it transpires in addition to having antiviral properties which has been known for some time it has activity against influenza zika virus hiv virus as well as a whole host of viruses so ivermectin has antiviral properties but also it is a potent anti-inflammatory drug wow so Mm that's truly remarkable. So you can actually use it across the spectrum. And there is a young lady in our department who actually has a severe dermatological condition called Rozier. And she uses a topical ivermectin together with other drugs because of its anti-inflammatory properties. So it's been known for a long time that it is a very effective anti-inflammatory drug, which makes it therefore extremely attractive because it has life-saving properties across the spectrum of the phases of covid
0: yes and there's a chart here again which i'll include in the show notes where you show different medications and you have different colors different boxes and it's interesting to note that it's ivermectin actually at the bottom here which has the three different stages uh, post-exposure post-exposure incubation benefit symptomatic phase benefit pulmonary inflammatory phase benefit none of the other medications there show a benefit right across the board so it is a remarkable substance and yet in the media you are being criticized for using a deworming medication as if that's totally out of order
1: yeah so maybe just to put it in perspective Mm. 3.7 billion that's with a b 3.7 billion people have been treated with this drug for parasitic infections. It is remarkably safe, remarkably safe. One of the safest medications. It is exceedingly cheap. So if you look at the NIH guidelines, and sorry to go back to them, the NIH as of today is recommending remdesivir. We know that remdesivir does not save lives. In fact, the WHO has taken it off their recommendations. But the NIH is still recommending the treatment with remdesivir. And unfortunately, what happens is, you know, people look at what the NIH say. They say these are the smartest people. And they say, well, doctor, you're smarter than the NIH. Hmm. Hmm. So the NIH is recommending remdesivir, which costs in excess of $3,000 a dose. Whereas you can see for that chart, ivermectin, which is highly effective. And here's the kicker. I bought my supply for ten dollars. Yeah, right. so I think that's yeah. you know. Yeah. There's your answer.
0: Yeah, and it can and be. You know it's what? it's uh, produced. It's 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 no longer in. Um, any firm can just make it, can't they?
1: Absolutely, it's off patent, so it's exceedingly it. cheap, yeah. and so yeah. that's where we come to. And you know, I am not I'm a scientist, I believe in the facts and the truth, mm-hmm. but there is absolutely no question, and I already have a target on my back that big pharma are responsible for this human catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Because the profiteering of people suffering seems to be the agenda rather than saving lives. It's awful and that's essentially why we consider it a fringe group. It's because Big Pharma has complete power over the media, over the NIH, over the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet. Mm. The editors have openly admitted, Mm. openly admitted that Big Pharma pressurized them to publish papers that are to the benefit of Big Pharma. If you just look at the remdesivir, issue on that CDC panel to evaluate remdesivir, there were 16 members who had financial ties to the company. Mm -hmm. Let me say that again. The people on the evaluation committee evaluating remdesivir had financial ties with the company. This is public knowledge. It's truly outrageous. There's no question that the narrative is being controlled by Big Pharma. Yeah. And what you may not know, or what people don't know, is the U.S. is the only country in the world in which pharmaceutical companies can directly advertise prescription drugs to consumers over the TV in the newspaper. So they, big media, most of their or a large proportion of their advertising revenue comes from big pharma. Mm-hmm. They are absolutely. Petrified to go against Big Pharma. And I'll give you an example. Two months ago, um, I did a two and a half hour interview with the Wall Street Journal. I went through everything we're talking about today. The senior editor squashed the story and refused for it to be published. They are absolutely petrified of the backlash from Big Pharma. Yeah. It's outrageous. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say this, and I really mean it it's a crime against mm-hmm. humanity.
0: Yes, I can, I can sense the enormous frustration in your voice, and it's totally justified. Um, I think it's an extremely, extremely painful subject, um, what is going on. It's absolutely yeah. tragic. Uh, can can I just... We, we um,
1: see, you know, I should mm, just emphasize, on. we see mm. these people dying. Mm. They die because mm. they can't breathe. They're mm. suffocating to death. Mm. Let me say that again. This is a pulmonary disease. These mm. patients suffocate to death. And they do this alone. Because they have COVID, these people die alone. It is one of the most awful things to see. As the healthcare workers, our poor nurses, our therapists are mortified and severely traumatized by witnessing the death of these people. It's awful. And this is preventable. You know, we have over 300,000 people that have died in the U.S., Yeah. It's truly astonishing. Mm.
0: Obviously, I don't experience it where I am. You know, I'm, I'm sheltered from it. But just following the information that's going on here, I, I feel the I feel the tension. I feel the contradiction, and, and I'm aware of what you say. There are countless thousands of people dying completely unnecessarily, and it is even for somebody like me, it grates enormously. You know, I wake up each day thinking, what kind of world are we living in now? Um, can I just come back to you with this safety issue? Because you say that it's it's safe. It's been used by billions of people for various uh, issues, uh, but there are just for the sake of the record here there are side effects are there not um you know headache dizziness etc so et and even some things like seizures loss of consciousness etc so i suppose critics could point to those and say look this is not a safe drug
1: yeah so you know what we've looked at the safety data in enormous detail hmm. you know i have hundreds of papers on ivermectin and it is an interesting drug so the problem is most of the reported side effects on people who have parasitic infections and many of the Side effects are related to the death of the parasite Uh, rather than the drug. So these are people have filaria or oncocycus or strongyloides. So it's killing the parasite. Once the parasite dies, it releases antigens, which can cause allergic reactions. So most of the reported side effects are puritis, which is itchy skin, a low-grade fever, headache, malaise. But most of those are probably related to the death of the parasite, rather than the drug itself. Okay. Now, what we do know in terms of its neurological complications, Mm. so there are certain animals, which include collie dogs, other herding dogs, and tortoises, who have a mutation of the gene which controls the transport of ivermectin into the brain. So collie dogs are particularly vulnerable to ovimectin, and in them it can cause seizures and altered consciousness. This does not happen mostly in humans. There's been one reported case in a human who has this genetic defect. So it is astonishingly rare. However, presumably there are things that you could. There may you be could... drug drug interactions
0: ah, which okay. interfere
1: with the metabolism. So okay. the drug is exceedingly safe. So, what is important and is in our protocol is that there's a, a reference to drug drug interaction. So, for most people, it's a non issue. But if you, for example, are a kidney transplant patient and are taking a kidney transplant medication, these are called calcineurin drugs, which is cyclosporin or tacrolimus. There may be an interaction between the two drugs. So although it's remarkably safe, there are a few instances in which there are drug-drug interactions, which you have to be cognizant of.
0: Right. Uh, and presumably there are some drugs and substances which can affect the blood-brain barrier. Can they compromise that?
1: Yes, yeah, so that's the reason if you understand how the drug works and you understand which drugs alter this, it's a glycoprotein which pumps the othermectin out of the brain. If you understand these drug-drug interactions, you will minimize the likelihood of side effects. The bottom line is that most people are not on these toxic drugs, so it's not an issue. But obviously, that's why it's important that physicians prescribe this. So they need to understand ivermectin. They need to check what drugs the patient is taking. And there is actually a website that lists the interactions. And it's mainly a specific class of drugs. As I said, transplant drugs and some antifungal drugs. But you know what? Aspirin kills people. So you know, in <laughs> yeah. terms of big picture, this is a very safe drug and the the tractors don't want to, you know, they're going to point out the negative effects, which are exceedingly rare. It's very rare. I'm not sure if there's been a single person on this planet who's actually been reported to have died from an hmm. ivermectin. Okay. So let me say that again. We know that at least 3.7 billion people have been treated with this drug. I'm unaware there was one death but we think that was related to the underlying disease and not the ivermectin. So it is a remarkably safe drug. I have no hesitation in taking it. I take it myself because I don't want to get COVID.
0: Mm -hmm. Some people are talking in terms of using animal ivermectin or even consuming cream, which is for topical application. Um, Presumably you you would advise people against doing that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, that's a reflection of the desperate situation we're in because physicians will not prescribe ivermectin. So, you know, these poor patients will resort to drastic measures, which includes taking horse ivermectin, which is ivermectin, you know. Um, So there is a horse ivermectin, which is apple-flavored. whatever reason (laughs) so i had a patient who was (laughs) you're not going to believe the story he was on high levels of oxygen in an icu the doctors refused refused to prescribe ivermectin so what the family did is they got horse ivermectin they worked out what the dose is and they put it into what a twinkie so a twinkie is like a donut with cream in the middle it's an american thing put (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the ivermectin in the, in the middle of the Twinkie, and they fed the patient ivermectin Twinkies. That's what they had to do. I mean, is that not catastrophic in this healthcare system uh-huh. that patients have to, on the side, treat their loved ones with a drug because the healthcare
0: system won't allow it? Yeah, it's, as I said before, totally topsy-turvy. Okay, well, all right. Well, how good is the evidence for this now? I mean, uh, it wasn't that long ago. uh, Actually, probably a few months ago now, uh, Thomas Barodi had a triple therapy which included ivermectin, and he was saying that this was highly, highly successful. But at the time, there wasn't as much evidence as there is now. At least I get the impression that's the case. Could you give us some idea of just how good the evidence is now for ivermectin?
1: Yes, So, you know, I think you have to look at the totality of the evidence. For example, you know, if someone is being tried of murder, you've got to look at all the evidence and make an informed decision. Look at all the evidence. So if you put all the evidence together, I think it is extremely strong. So that is, you know, in vitro studies, animal studies, preventative studies, early treatment, late treatment. If you look at the totality of the evidence, It's extremely strong. Now, the critics are going to say that the papers haven't been peer-reviewed. Many of these are pre-print. But you know what? We're in the middle of a pandemic. It takes months for articles to undergo peer review and be published. Mm. We've looked at the data. It's very credible. And all of these studies line up together. That's an important point. So then the critics are going to have to say that, all these investigators from all these countries are lying and they have some kind of coordinated conspiracy Hmm. because all the data lines up. What's truly even more impressive is the epidemiological data. So there are many countries in South America where they've just been handing out ivermectin. And if you look at the epidemiological data, which is nicely reviewed in a preprint paper, which Dr. Corey did, the data speaks for itself. Once these different provinces started handing out ivermectin, the mortality went down. And, you know, the healthcare authorities saw this. So, you know, if you look at all the data in the totality, I think it's very convincing. Now, you know, we have a few randomized trials. You know, obviously, they're small. No one is going to invest large sums of money to investigate a cheap drug. Mm -hmm. But you know what? I think the data is overwhelming. And I would consider it unethical to do a randomized controlled trial with ivermectin because it's safe. There's a very strong indication it's effective. If this was your mother or father or child, Would you consent them to be put into a randomized study when they get placebo?
0: No, absolutely. I
1: think it's unethical. Absolutely. And in fact, the Helsinki Accord would agree that such an intervention is unethical. So what we need to do, we need the health authorities to review the data, give us some kind of a positive, they don't have to absolutely endorse it because it's a turn and face for them but say the data is promising and then we need to do observational studies just give hundreds of thousands of people ivermectin and see what happens
0: Mm. you know
1: it's not rocket science
0: (laughs) yeah didn't you say in your interview with dr bean that there is a meta-analysis of this of i think it's four randomized control trials and three observational trials and they all favor ivermectin with massive statistical significance is that right is there actually yes so you an know an analysis that i could point to
1: yeah so you know we have this meta analysis on our website and let me give you the mm-hmm. web address it's www.flccc.net flccc.net on the website we have the meta analysis The truth speaks for itself. It has a meta-analysis of remdesivir, which does not work, convalescent serum, which does not work, um, corticosteroids, which works for pulmonary patients, and then it has ivermectin, both hospitalized as well as pre and post exposure. All of the studies show a highly significant reduction in mortality, for treated patients and in getting the disease for prophylaxis. So the data is there, you know, if people want to look for it. Mm -hmm. And the hospital treatment is based on both observational and randomized controlled trials. So, you know, if people think the data is not convincing, this must be a, a conspiracy amongst all of these physicians in different parts of the world you know, who decided to provide false information. You know, one of the study comes out of Florida. You know, it's a very convincing study. It shows significant reduction in mortality, critically of people who get ivermectin.
0: Well, there's a conspiracy somewhere. It just depends where it is. Um, It's just a matter of looking into it and seeing what you think is the most reasonable. And certainly, um, yes, I'll put those links to the things that you just mentioned there. The other question is, when it comes to the antiviral action, how does this work, or how is this hypothesised to work?
1: Yeah, so
0: it's not clear, is it?
1: So you know what? It's a good question, and has generated a lot of controversy. Yeah. So if you look at the clinical studies, they all show that ivermectin increases viral clearance and decreases viral shedding, and it has strong prophylaxis ability. So one of the best studies is Dr. Covello in Argentina. So what he did is he took 1,200 or so healthcare workers. 800 of them were given ivermectin weekly for 10 weeks. The results were astonishing. Out of those 800 healthcare workers, not a single one came down with COVID, not a single one. In the 400 control patients, 58% of them got COVID. It's overwhelmingly obvious that this has potent antiviral properties. Now, there are a number of postulated mechanisms as to how this works. The early one was from this study out of Australia where they postulated or demonstrated that it actually acts to prevent SARS proteins getting into the nucleus Mm -hmm. through a specific transport protein. The concentrations in that study were really high. Um, so people think that it's not—it's not a viable mechanism.
0: Oh, yes, I read that. Yes.
1: However, we have data that it, it acts on the spike protein, the nuclear protein. It acts at different possible sites. So mm. you know what—it seems to work. How it works, you know, is still somewhat of a debate. But the reality is, who cares? You know, if it actually works. <laughs> Yeah, you know,
0: it yeah. works. Yeah, yeah, We've got years and years of luxury later on working out how it does work when the uh, good has been done with it. Exactly. Um, all right. So it's not being officially adopted. Um, I mean, one of the, one of the reasons for this, I'm going to put this to you. I don't know what you think of this, but some people are arguing that ivermectin is not being officially adopted because the US emergency use authorization for new and relatively expensive drugs and vaccines and the like legally requires that no effective treatment already exists. And I've got the quote here from the FDA website, which I'll read if necessary. You just can't have any uh, effective treatments already in existence if you want to develop and authorise new treatments for such a disease. So that seems to give a motive straight away there. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty obvious. You know, the point is that ivermectin is FDA approved. This is an FDA approved drug for the treatment of parasitic diseases in humans. So the FDA does not need to issue an EUA because this is a really approved drug. It's approved for use mm. in humans. All they have to do is say, yes, we find enough evidence to suggest that it may have a role. That's all we want them to say. But their website says they do not recommend the use of ivermectin, and they base it on this study in Australia of Kelly in which they say that the concentrations that are achievable in humans cannot be achieved similar to they found in that study, so they don't recommend it. Um, they're obviously completely ignoring the clinical data. So, you know, this is, this is not a new and experimental drug or vaccine. Mm. This is a mm. drug which is on the WHO list of essential medications. It's on the WHO list of essential medications. This is an FDA-approved drug. Sure. We do not need an emergency authorization to use this drug because it's already authorized. Mm. All we need to do is for the NIH, the CDC, the WHO to review the data, and while they may not want to you know give a complete green light what they need to say is that there is sufficient data that this drug is promising or shows promise or may be of benefit and remove their warning on not to use it
0: but if they did that it would be admitting that there is an effective treatment that already exists and therefore it would not be legal for any of these authorizations to happen so be countless billions of dollars would be lost
1: yeah, so this is what gets to why we are in the situation oh. we're in. Mm. And there's no question of doubt, you know, it's completely obvious to anybody that the situation we in is based on economic factors. Yeah. That if you just look at the data, you would say, this is a no-brainer. So why is this happening? In that economic forces are at play which are promoting new novel drugs and vaccines which are expensive in favor of cheap, safe drugs.
0: Let me just uh, read that very quickly. So this is from the FDA website. So it is, what is an emergency use authorization? Quote, an emergency use authorization is a mechanism to facilitate the availability and use of medical countermeasures, including vaccines during public health emergencies, such as the current COVID-19 pandemic. Under an EUA, FDA may allow the use of unapproved medical products or unapproved uses of approved medical products in an emergency to diagnose, treat or prevent serious or life-threatening diseases or conditions when certain statutory criteria have been met including that there are no adequate approved and available alternatives, end quote. I was just uh, giving the evidence there of what I said earlier in my question to you. Um, Now, having brought up vaccines there, I want to point out that certainly I am not, as the phrase goes, anti-vax. You are not anti-vax. Presumably, you don't see what you're suggesting as a complete alternative to vaccination, but something complementary.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously, I think If you look at the history of vaccination, it's had the biggest impact on humanity than any other intervention. You look at polio, smallpox, measles, it's truly astonishing what vaccinations have achieved. So I'm certainly not against vaccination. The problem is, in order for vaccination to be effective and control this pandemic, at least 70% of the world's population needs to be vaccinated. OK, right. There's an enormous number of people that need to be vaccinated. So we see this as a bridge to vaccination mm. because we have a crisis right now. People are dying. Three thousand people died in the U.S. Mm. yesterday. We have a national crisis, which vaccination is not going to solve it. They're complementary to each other. Mm. It's very important. So it's not a one or the other. They complement each other. Hmm. And we see our protocol as a bridge to vaccination because the reality is it's going to take months, if not years, until sufficient people have been vaccinated. So what you're going to do in the meantime, just let the unvaccinated people die. That's morally unacceptable.
0: Hmm. Yeah, countless more thousands of people. Um, You had a press conference a little while ago, and only a few days ago, there was a Senate hearing So, this was organized by Republican Senator Ron Johnson. This is the Senate hearing, US Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, the 8th of December. Dr. Pierre Corey gave an impassioned address there. I'll put the video up to that. What has, has there been any reaction by the establishment, by the medical establishment to either of these events, your conference and your hearing?
1: Yes, the, the silence has been so audible. It's completely overwhelming, completely overwhelming, the silence. Mm. And to tell you something truly remarkable, you know, Dr. Corey testified in a Senate hearing. His, the video of that Senate hearing was removed by YouTube. YouTube removed his Senate hearing because they said he was, or the Senate was, propagating medical misinformation. Now, is that just not truly an astonishing thing? He testified Absolutely. in a Senate hearing on these issues, which YouTube and media have now considered undesirable medical misinformation and has removed his video, the video of the Senate hearing.
0: Mm.
1: Is that not the highest level of censorship?
0: Absolutely. You know, we've
1: spoken about censorship. Yes. I mean, I think that is truly astonishing. Mm. The Senate hearing has been considered medical misinformation and has been censored.
0: Yes, extremely sad. Um, presumably you have a reaction also to, uh, there was one piece in the New York Times which is has um, been talked about a lot. Uh, it's called Elevating Fringe Theories, Ron Johnson Questions Virus Science. So this is the 7th of December. And, um, this is where this business about fringe beliefs comes up again. I mean, it says here, uh, Mr. Johnson has used his gavel on the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee to elevate voices who public health experts say represent fringe beliefs. Here we go again. So it doesn't matter. You can present these things in this open public forum like this. Um, be invited officially to do so. You are extremely well trained and experienced practitioners. And then somebody who is a two-bit journalist at the New York Times can just write about you that you're fringe. It's astonishing.
1: Yeah, so, you know, not to pat myself on the back because I really don't do this, but, Hmm. you know, as you said, I'm the second most published critical care person in the entire world, and I'm being called a fringe. (laughs) So I'm a scientist. I'm led by the science. You know, I publish over 500 papers. I've been cited over 42,000 times, yeah. and i considered a fringe physician.
0: And anti-science, there's an implication. There's a, an image text that goes with an image of Senator Ron Johnson in that article, and underneath it says, Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin has been willing to echo the most conspiracy-minded and anti-science impulses of President Trump. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't actually say that you and your colleagues are, but it's there in the article. It gives the impression that you're anti-science, which... Absolutely topsy turvy when you are, in fact, very eminent scientists. Incredible.
1: Yeah. So, you know, unfortunately, this has become a political issue, and I wish it wouldn't. Yes. Because politics and religion and money should have nothing to do with this. We should be Mm. directed by the absolute science. That's what should guide us. Mm. You know, I wrote the textbook called Evidence Based Critical Care. We should look at the evidence impartially, you know, without any conflicts and just look at the evidence Got nothing to do with politics you know, it's become such a partisan issue in the US it's truly astonishing you know, we should take the politics out of this people are dying, there's no place for this partisan bickering
0: Um, Can I just finish off this business about the iMask protocol? Because obviously it's not just ivermectin. You say that ivermectin is central to that and everything else is built around it. Can I just very briefly ask you about the other substances? Obviously people can go and look at the link and uh, download the protocol and take a look at it. Um, So you have here, so this is uh, your prophylaxis and for early outpatient protocol. So it's ivermectin is there at the top of the list, different doses for different situations of course, but you also have a vitamin D3, vitamin C, quercetin, zinc, melatonin and aspirin. Now we talked about some of those with Dr. Bean, uh, not all of them, but could you just describe some of those substances very briefly so that people get an idea of what are these the sort of satellite substances are around ivermectin?
1: Yeah, so you know it's a package mm. and they're all based on science. You know, we know that a significant proportion of the population is vitamin D deficient, hmm. particularly in winter, particularly in people who live in the north, you know, north above 40 degrees latitude, people in old age homes, obese people are vitamin D deficient. It's been shown vitamin D deficiency increases your risk of getting COVID and dying of COVID. So giving vitamin D is a non-brainer and none of the organizations want to talk about it. I think NICE... In England, declared there was no evidence. You've got to be kidding me. Vitamin D deficiency is really common. It's non toxic if taken in the right dose. That every single person in the north, you know, in, during winter who is at risk should take vitamin D. I mean, this is a non brainer.
0: Mm, mm. You know, then you come Can to- I just uh, jump in there because you have all these suggestions, which I've heard from many different people, um, different doctors. And you just reminded me that, yes, indeed, it's not only the National Institute of Health in, in America, but also the NHS here. And I accessed their information yesterday. So that was the 13th of December. It was a YouTube link, actually, that took me through to finding out the latest information from the government about coronavirus. And um, there was a button that uh, I pressed called Learn More. So I thought, well, oh, I'll learn more then about what the government's telling me on this. And it says here, how to treat coronavirus symptoms at home, quote, There is currently no specific treatment for coronavirus, COVID-19, but you can often ease the symptoms at home until you recover. And then all it just gives you advice about if you've got a high temperature, drink water, take paracetamol or ibuprofen. If you've got a cough, don't lie on your back, lie on your side, sit upright and try and have a teaspoon of honey. That was yesterday.
1: Yeah, so it's astonishing. I mean, it's, you know, I don't know what to say. It's a crime against humanity. We have therapies specific treatments at home. And I think for political and economic reasons, these are being censored and blocked. You know, vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc are exceedingly cheap. So, you know, why not even just look at the data or say it's encouraging? You know, there was a study out of Turkey which gave healthcare workers vitamin C and quercetin for prophylaxis and showed a remarkable reduction in the development or acquisition of COVID. Mm. So, you know, there are multiple studies that show the benefit of these exceedingly cheap agents. And we believe they act additively together. Mm. There's no single wonder drug, but Mm. they act together. You know, this is vitamin D, this is vitamin C, this is zinc. Mm. You know, Mm. we're not talking about expensive pharmaceutical agents Um, and you know they're safe they're completely safe there's data showing from the US that people who take melatonin have a significantly reduced risk of getting COVID this was published in a highly reputable medical journal and interestingly enough people of color in whom this disease affects disproportionately were most protected if they took melatonin melatonin is probably the safest drug on this planet you cannot give enough melatonin to an animal to kill it it's just that safe Ah. so what's the issue
0: well i'm amazed to hear you say that and the reason why is because you cannot get it here over the counter in the uk you i've looked you can get quercetin and i've bought some and quite anecdotally i've i seem to have warded off five colds with it but that's purely anecdotal um but nevertheless melatonin you say is very safe cannot get it extraordinary
1: yeah so th- there's some there's something very sinister going on here which you know is very disturbing
0: mm. uh, one last question here um before i ask you what you suggest we can do about this <laughs> to prepare for that one is coming um that this last question um as i said already there's lots of advice coming out from lots of very well-trained doctors very experienced doctors they're pointing to research they're they're each suggesting what can you do about early treatment prophylaxis their own little protocols it's great i'm glad all that information is out there it's very exciting and you know to be able to look at that and say wouldn't well, no, i actually can get hold of some of these substances but it's very difficult for the lay person to know what to follow i mean i could just say look there's vitamin c d b complex squirsten zinc and astaxanthine, coq10 selenium lysine thimoquinone uh, curcumin luteolin." Asulic acid, famotidine, aspirin, melatonin, just mentioned, ivermectin even, even bromexine, a cough medicine. What, what do you do with all this information as a layperson? You can't just lump them all together, can you, and go to your doctor and say, hey doctor, should I just take the lot?
1: Yeah, so you ask a really good question. So firstly, unfortunately, everybody has become a health authority on covid Mm. Their grandmothers in authority, their dead uncles in authority. So everybody has become an authority on COVID. And the Internet is just overwhelmed with people who are making all of these outrageous claims. That's unfortunately part of the problem. So what we need to do is, as a society, as humanity, come together and distill out what is the best approach to this disease which is what we've tried to do
0: yes um then- can i just stop you though just for just for a second because I, I know there are outrageous claims that's absolutely key but all of those substances i mentioned there are suggested by your medical colleagues they're not people just yes. off the wall i deliberately assembled those they all have evidence behind them yes but what do you do yes as, yes. as a you- layperson, what do i do how do i choose between one protocol and yes. another can i mix and match can i add them all together
1: yeah, so you ask a really good question and many of these are medical people who I'm not sure they have the, you know, insight that us as a group have. And to some degree you get diminishing returns. I mean, you could have a patient taking one hundred different kinds of medications that may be of theoretical benefit. What you really want is what gives you the biggest bang for your buck. So there are a whole host of things which maybe of theoretical benefit we try to distill it down to those that are most likely to be efficacious but i think this is a discussion that medicine needs we you know Mm. you shouldn't have all of these different people putting out different protocols confuse people and your question is an outstandingly good one but you see our healthcare authorities have completely ignored this aspect Mm -hmm. which is you know if we had a national forum that physicians got together and decided together what's best mm. for humanity. Where's the science the strongest? But nobody wants to do that. So, you know, we've looked at all of these other therapies. Some of them may have some value, but, you know, you have to, we think our approach is the most bang for the buck and there's the most data. But you know what? It changes. For example, if you look at famotidine. You know, we go with the data. Initially, it looked like the Mododine had some promise. I think the level actually is less now, so it may not be promising. So it's the science that's guiding us. Hmm. You know, we don't have, you know, we're guided by the science rather than some kind of religious belief.
0: And yet people do say we're guided by the science and… uh they reach completely different i mean the the politicians will say yeah we're guided by the science so uh yeah what does that even mean these days um yes (laughs) it's up to each individual to look at it and say well who, who has got the most rational voice here
1: Yeah, so, you know, I think politicians don't understand science or how it works. Mm. And, you know, I think if something is true, it's reproducible. One of the most important tenets of scientific observation is reproducibility, Mm. is that if you can show this in London, you can show this in Paris, you can show this in New York, if an observation is valid, it's reproducible. Mm. Reproducibility is such an important thing in medical science, And, you know, the data shows in terms of vitamin D, in terms of ivermectin, it's completely reproducible. Um, And I think that's what's important. And I think there are too many distracting factors which come into play, politics and economics. So, you know, we should push them aside. We should look at the science as best as we can. There's always a risk-benefit ratio. You know, if something is very safe, you know, you're going to lower your ball. If something is, you know, an experimental drug, you want a higher level of evidence. Mm. And I think, you know, we're in a pandemic. You, you have to be realistic.
0: Yeah. Yes, I think it's a very important point, isn't it, to recognize that science is a methodology or a collection of methodologies. It is not an institution. Yet frequently, the word science is being used to mean what an institution says. Well, that is not the case. It's a methodology. And we need to keep that in mind. So my last question to you is what can we do?
1: Yeah, so that's yeah, so you know that's really a good question. So, you know, I think what we can do is inform people, mm. inform doctors and hopefully we'll then have informed politicians and we'll have informed healthcare administrators. Because I think information is power. If people understand this disease, they understand the information out there, you know, that is very powerful. I think there's been a lot of misinformation. So, you know, our goal would be to get out the truth, you know, mm-hmm. and people can evaluate it for themselves. Look at all the science and make an impartial, objective evaluation. So I think what we need to do is get the information out there. Yeah. And people need to be proactive, you know,
0: and. Mm-hmm. Um, Give this information to their doctors. I mean, you've got a website, haven't you? We've got yeah. More than one website, but you've got those documents on there, those PDFs with protocol on all the background to this. So those things could actually be printed off and handed to your doctor. Yes.
1: Yeah, so, you know, it's a bizarre situation that we have patients who are educating doctors. Um, <laughs> it's incredible. What is the world yeah. coming to?
0: Indeed. Well, thank you ever so much, Dr. Marick. Absolutely fascinating and important discussion. I mean it's a it's a huge privilege for me to have spoken with you, a very eminent scientist, and um, you know, I believe that this is crucially important work that you and your alliance colleagues are doing and I've I very much wish that more people knew about it, and I hope that listeners will share this information far and wide. Go to your websites, get hold of that information um, so i'll just say that the uh, you can access the protocols at the f l c c c website that 's the frontline covid nineteen critical care alliance website that 's covid nineteen critical care. Dot com Links will, of course, be in the show notes. And also the East Virginia, Eastern Virginia Medical School pages on COVID-19, which can be found at evms.edu forward slash COVID-19. Again, in the show notes. Um, I understand that you have a YouTube channel there, don't you, Dr. Marek? Yes,
1: yeah, so I do have a YouTube <laughs> channel with yes. a number of these videos. Unfortunately, YouTube took down one of the videos because, <sighs> again, I was promoting uh... medical misinformation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Well, that's uh, if people want to search for that again, links, of course. But it's uh, under Paul Marrick. That's just the name of the channel. Do recommend people to go and look at those presentations there while they're still up, if the great medics at YouTube you know, before they take them down. Um, I'll just uh, quickly say before we go, I'll repeat, nothing said here today is medical advice. Everybody's different. Everybody has different needs, different tolerances, etc. So please do consult with your doctor before taking any medications or supplements. Thank you again, Dr. Marek, for carving out time from your very busy schedule to speak with us. I'm very grateful to you.
1: Sure, it's a, it's a privilege and a pleasure. And, you know, our goal is to spread, provide information and, you know, valid information
0: absolutely thank you thank you very much indeed good to speak with you wonderful thank you hey bye bye-bye show notes for this program can be found at the mind renewed themindrenewed.com podcast music by the brilliant anthony reijakov attribution non-commercial share alike 4.0 international you have been listening to me julian charles and my guest dr paul marrick and i very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future